Deuteronomy 26. And we are at a breakneck pace. I know I've said that for 18 years <laughs> going through the Bible, but we really are. Um, I think I may have shared Sunday or, or uh, last Wednesday or both that my plan is Deuteronomy done by Christmas. Why are you in a rush, Rick? I don't know. I just, it just seemed like a good time to be done with Deuteronomy. So we're going to roll through this, and tonight, three chapters. So buckle up, prepare yourselves. There's a, a, quite a bit of just kind of going through and listening to what it is that Moses was saying. Um, some with commentary, some without. But we're just going to roll through this, and I, I think you'll be blessed by it. I hope you will. I know I have been already. Deuteronomy 26. This brings us now, this chapter actually, to the end of the applied teaching of the law. So that sermon of Moses, remember, on the plains of Moab across the Jordan River from Jericho. Moses preaching through, literally taking the Ten Commandments. And as we have talked about and looked at, he's applying them one by one to life in the new land, in the promised land. Israelite life, this is what this means to you. And, and, and we've seen the application of these, and we'll finish that out tonight as we come to the end of his teaching. Now, Deuteronomy 27 and 28 that we will delve into tonight, move through, hopefully we'll get through both of them, but they begin to me the most intriguing section of Hadevarim, of these words of Moses. Remember, Hadevarim, Allah Hadevarim, these are the words of Moses, Hadevarim, these words. And before we're done tonight, you will hear out of the mouth of Moses prophecies spoken 3,500 years ago that we have seen fulfilled in this generation. Things that have taken place going all the way up to present day and some shocking and stunning things. How could Moses possibly have known, well inspired by the Holy Spirit of the living God? Of course, he knew. It's one of the many reasons why I accept the Bible as God's given word, because he said it and then it happened. And you'll see some of that tonight as well. But Moses now is going to end this sermon with a first, with a first. Chapter 26, verse 1, then it shall be when you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance and you possess it and live in it, that you shall take some of the first of all the produce of the ground which you bring in from your land that the Lord your God gives you, and you shall put it in a basket and go to the place where the Lord your God chooses to establish his name. At first that was Shiloh, then ultimately Jerusalem. You shall go to the priest who is in office at that time and say to him, I declare this day to the Lord my God that I have entered the land which the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. And then the priest shall take the basket from your hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord your God. This is the first first fruits offering. And we've talked about the, the seven major feasts of Israel, seven of them on the calendar year, beginning in the springtime with Passover, Pesach, and then Hag Hamatzot, which is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It begins with Passover and it runs the next seven days following Passover. In the midst of that, on a couple of days after Passover, is Reshit, which is first fruits. So you have Passover, first fruits, unleavened bread, all happening at the same time in Jerusalem before the Lord. Glorious, joyful feasts. And then 50 days later, Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks, or what we call Pentecost. Then you got to go all the way through the long summer 
And you come to the fall of the year and you have Yom Teruah, which simply means a day of blowing. It's a favorite holiday of mine, Yom Teruah, because it reminds us that the trumpet will sound. And when the trumpet sounds, we go home. Yom Teruah, the day of trumpets or the day of blowing, literally. And then you enter the awesome days, 10 awesome days, and you land on Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. And then after Yom Kippur, the last feast of the year, the Feast of Tabernacles or booths or tents, the Feast of Pup Tents, you could call it that if you want to, Sukkot. But among these seven feasts, this now is the first Reshit, the first first fruits. And I want you to notice this because there are several things that the, the Jewish person was to say on this particular first first fruits. This wouldn't necessarily be the case for every first fruits, but the very first time they actually had a harvest of the land, they would go up to the place, which was Shiloh, where God had chosen to put his name, and they would speak this. They would bring the basket of first fruits and speak four different specific things. And the first one is a declaration upon possession. A declaration upon possession. Again, in verse 3, I declare, I declare. This day to the Lord, my God, that I have entered the land which the Lord swore to our fathers to give us a declaration of possession, which is in reality a statement of God's faithfulness. They were to go in and say, we have possessed the land. This was the land promised. This was the land that God told all the way back to Abraham and then Isaac and Jacob. He has been faithful to this centuries old now promise and the promise included something else that the Jewish person was to say, the Israelite, as they, as they went up and they brought the basket of first fruits. And that is a, number two, transformation through affliction. Note that, a, a declaration of possession followed by a transformation through affliction. Verse 5, you shall answer and say before the Lord your God, my father was a wandering Aramean. And he went down to Egypt and sojourned there, few in number, but there he became a great and mighty and populous nation. By the way, my father was a wandering Aramean, speaks of Jacob. Jacob. More on that in just a second here. And the Egyptians treated us, verse 6, harshly and afflicted us and imposed hard labor upon us. And then we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction and our toil and our oppression. So transformation through affliction from a wandering Aramean, which is Jacob, to a mighty nation, Israel. That phrase wandering Aramean really fits Jacob well, I think. Remember, he had to leave his land, leave his, his father's house, and he traveled north through Canaan's land, and ultimately he would end up over, over in the region where, well, where Abraham had come from, other side of the Jordan, other side even of the Euphrates, and he stayed there for a while, came back with, you know, a few wives and some kids and stuff. But this wandering Aramean Jacob, interesting, the word wandering there is Obed. Obed, which in Hebrew translates perishing, a perishing Aramean. 
Meaning what? Meaning that Jacob and his family got to the point in Canaan's land when they had come back in and settled. They weren't wandering, but they were perishing. They were in the midst of a famine and starving to death. At that time, Jacob thought his son Joseph was dead, but his son Joseph was second over all Egypt. Jacob sent his, the rest of his boys down, you remember the story, to, to go to Egypt to see if they could lodge there or get food there. And it's a whole long story I won't get into tonight, but Jacob, the wandering Aramean, the perishing Aramean, if you will, went down then to the provision and ultimately the pains and the persecutions of life in Egypt. Israel, along with all his family, would have been wiped out had they stayed in Canaan, perishing, but he goes down to Egypt where not only, note this, was he saved, but he grew immensely and was persecuted. That's us. That, that's us. There's a picture right here of, of you and me, once lost, once perishing, and then saved, yet still in the world. Egypt, picture of the world. And there in Egypt, the church begins to grow, begins to flourish with persecutions and pains and trials and tribulations and difficulties. So saved, but still in Egypt, uh, saved from famine and yet in the world. But we're growing, facing trials, but growing not only in number as a church, but growing in faith as a follower of Jesus. Transformation through affliction. It preaches easily, but we don't like to live it. Transformation through affliction. I can talk about it. I can point to scriptures that say this is the deal. This is how sanctification works. I just don't want to go through it. Thank you very much. I prefer to have maybe some of you go through it, and I'll pray for you. But not me. I don't want the affliction. Bible tells us, Paul writing in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. We could say in Egyptian vessels, because like Jacob and all, we're down in Egypt, so we're down in the world, but we have a treasure. We have this amazing gift in these earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are, Paul writes, afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. It, it strikes me as Paul is writing this that from his perspective, he's writing with a smile on his face. Like he's, he's sharing with the church of Corinth, hey, this is good news. Now, read it without faith. Read it without Jesus, and it's like, are you kidding me? We're afflicted in every way, not crushed, perplexed, not despairing, persecuted, not forsaken, struck down, not destroyed. I'd just rather be destroyed. You know, rather than go through all of this, Caring about in our body the dying of Jesus. Well, that's cheery, but Paul means it to be. He means it as an amazing encouragement. Further down in the same chapter, 2 Corinthians 4, 16, he says, therefore we do not lose heart. Though our outer man is decaying, man, I can attest to that this week. See, I woke up yesterday morning and my left knee, I had a skiing accident 
years ago, 28 years old, twisted my knee up really bad, had to walk around with a brace for six months, and I healed up, and I thought it was fine. And then I hit 40, and the pain came back. And then it went away, and then I about my, I think it was about my mid-40s, I was out playing basketball with some guys on this concrete basketball court. Bad, bad idea. And I was playing good, good day. I was, I was nailing everything. I'm driving. I'm having a great day. And at the end of that, I could hardly walk. I'm like, I'm 45 years old. What's up? And now all I have to do is kneel down, and this knee will remind me of my ski accident when I was 28. Though our outer man is decaying, or in my case, my inner kneecap, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. So I wake up yesterday morning and my knee is stiff as a board and I can hardly walk all day. It's a little bit better today, but man, it's like having a, a hot poker sticking in my kneecap. And I'm reminded, and see, this is, this is the Paul faith here. And sometimes it gets into us, you know, where you're having a bad day, but you go, praise the Lord. My knee is in utter pain. Hallelujah. Why would you say that, you crazy Christian nut? Exactly. Because I know that this decay, man, this reminds me that the true me, the inner man, is being renewed, is growing, is getting stronger, transformation even through affliction. And I, I'm kidding about the knee. Yeah, it hurts, but... That's not the point. It's when we have hard times. It's when life is a pain in the neck. It's when someone's coming after us. It's when we're discouraged. It's when, you know, depression is fighting to set in that we can pause and realize, wait a minute, wait a minute. The inner man, the inner woman is being transformed in this moment. Have you had a hard day today? Praise the Lord. Having a difficult time this year, hallelujah, he's transforming you in Egypt. He's growing you in, in the world. He's preparing you for something so much better. Momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. No painful kneecaps in heaven. And the inner man, the inner woman being renewed every day, God is transforming you. And yes, through affliction. That's part of the deal, man, because we still live in Egypt. And until we are brought out of Egypt, there's going to be pain. There's going to be hardship. There's going to be affliction. But transformation is taking place. Like it or not, you're being transformed into glory. The Bible says from glory, his glory, to his glory. We're being caught up in this glorious transformational thing. Well, the next thing that they were to say, this is now in verse 8. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with great terror and with signs and wonders. Hang on a second. Think about this for a moment. That sounds like the rapture of the church to me. Now, am I reading into it? Listen again. The Lord brought us out of Egypt. The Lord brought us, we could say, out of the world. How? With a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And with great terror and with signs and wonders. And what follows the rapture of the church will be great terror and signs and wonders in that period called the tribulation. 
So I'm just making a parallel here that, man, we go down into Egypt, we're here in the world, saved, saved from the famine, saved from the perishing of our souls, and yet into the world we still are with all the pains and the persecutions and the hardships that come with it, and yet with a mighty hand, God will take us out of this world with great signs and wonders. But the Israelite was to continue saying, and he has brought us to this place and has given us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So number three, the third thing that they say there is liberation to emanation. Got all the shun words going for us tonight. Liberation to emanation. What do you mean emanation? That word flowing, emanating, you might say. He has brought us into a land flowing, I love that, with milk and honey, the word flowing is zabat in Hebrew, and it means abundantly gushing, as if milk was gushing down the hills and honey was gushing out of the hives, but it's more than the hives. The milk, the gushing milk is from healthy flocks, well-fed and living in the land. The dripping honey, not from the hives so much, although there were beehives, are beehives in Israel, but the honey he's talking about is probably the date honey, which if, if you've never had Israeli date honey, got to get you some. We'll try and bring some back from our trip this, this in March. And if you're going with us in March to Israel, pick up a jar of date honey, bring it home, and cook up some steaks. Man, it just pour, it's, it's fantastic. Date honey. Date palms growing throughout the land. This is a fruitful land, and this is a land with flocks and herds. And so God says... When you come into the land, declaration upon possession. And speak again of your transformation through affliction. And declare now your liberation to emanation. Bring some of that fruit with thanksgiving. And number four, a celebration of appreciation. Verse 10. And behold, now I have brought the first of the produce of the ground, which you, O Lord, have given me. And you shall set it down before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. And you and the Levite and the alien who's among you shall rejoice in all the good which the Lord your God has given you and your household. It was their first Thanksgiving. Their first Thanksgiving, a joyful offering of gratitude upon arrival in the land, upon settling in the land, just like the settlers in America. I think about the story, and I forget the year now, but it was the Berkeley Hundred is what they were called. And upon arriving in the new land, they declared a day of thanksgiving. In the fall, they, they said, let's have a day of thanksgiving and praise and worship to God for getting us here, there. And of the Berkeley Hundred, all 30 who were left gave thanks to God, praised the Lord. Seventy died on the crossing. 30 survived, and their response was not, woe is us for all our affliction and hardship and difficulty. No, their response was, praise the Lord, let's have a day of thanksgiving. Think about that a week from tomorrow when you're having your turkey. The thanksgiving is not about circumstances. Thanksgiving is about recognizing who God is and what God has done in your life and that he's gotten you even to where you are. Yes, there's been loss. Yes, there's been hardship and difficulty, but you are where you are because God has seen you through. I, I love this. It's so appropriate to consider 
Thanksgiving is not a food holiday. It is a heart, a heart reaction. It is, it's a heart attitude. And may our lives, not just one day, but our lives be marked with thanksgiving, with a celebration of appreciation that God day to day gets us to where we are, sees us through. As Paul said in Colossians 4.2, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it. Listen, you ever have trouble keeping alert in prayer? Someone's praying? This happened to me. Okay, I'll, I'll tell you this true story. It was only about a week and a half ago. Jake and Les and I are sitting up in my office, and the three of us together are praying. And it had been a long week, and I was a little tired. And we're praying, and Les prayed for a while, and then I prayed for a while, and then, and then Jake's praying. And all of a sudden, I realized I was dreaming. I, I kid you not, sitting in my office chair in the silence and the quiet and the prayerfulness, I just, I went out. <laughs> and I woke up and I kind of went. <laughs> looked around, you know, Les is still bowed. I'm like, okay, he's good with silence. I don't even know how long it's been quiet. But I realized Jake isn't praying anymore. And with my eye open, I look up and I see Jake going, I miss something here, you know? And Rick and Les just way more spiritual than I am because they're deep in prayer. You know, I was passed out. <laughs> Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it. How? With thanksgiving. You want to stay alert in your prayer? Give thanks. You find your prayer, you find your mind drifting in the midst of praying. Pause, stop what you're asking for, and just start listing off what you're thankful for and you will find yourself far more alert. Revelation chapter 7, verse 2. I love this. We sang it tonight. Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Now this here in Deuteronomy 26 is the beginning of Reshith, the first first fruits, which would then continue after this to be that joyful annual Thanksgiving celebration in Israel, the offering up of the first fruits in the fall, the harvest festival, if you will, of the Jewish people. And remember this. This is why Reshith matters. On the day of first fruits, Jesus resurrected Reshith the first fruits. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, if we have hoped in Christ for this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Hey, if you're a Christian just because you're part of the club, shame on you. You're wasting your time. But if you're a follower of Jesus because you know he resurrected from the dead, that's your hope his resurrection, your resurrection. And Paul says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits, the reshith, if you will, of those who are asleep. Reshith, the celebration of first fruits. These first 11 verses are all about the first reshith when they come into the land. But it reminds me every time I think about first fruits that Jesus paid it all and all to him I owe. Speaking of owing, can we really call it thanksgiving without the giving? See, there's a giving involved in the thankfulness. Watch this, verse 12. When you finish paying all the tithe of your increase in the third year, the year of tithing, then you shall give it to the Levite, to the stranger, to the orphan, and to the widow that they may eat in your towns and be satisfied. This is the third year tithe. 
It's already been stated in the law back in Deuteronomy 14, verses 28 and 29. Uh, Moses declared the third year tithe. You're going to have this every third year. They didn't just have an annual tithe. They also had a third year tithe. They also had other gifts and offerings. In fact, it's estimated in Israel that their tithes and offerings amounted annually to about 28% of all income, not just 10%. Although you Bible students know tithe means 10%. So every third year of the cycle of years, a third out of seven, we could say, every third year was supposed to be a third year tithe in which the tithe was given, that 10%, specifically to the Levites and, interestingly, the aliens, that is, the foreigners. So the Jewish people were to bring the third-year tithe, give it to the priests, and give it to the foreigners. But here Moses also adds the fatherless and the widow. He says in verse 13, You shall say before the Lord your God, I have removed the sacred from my house, and also have given it to the Levite and the alien, the orphan and the widow, according to all your commandments which you have commanded me. I have not transgressed or forgotten any of your commandments. I have not eaten of it while mourning, nor have I removed any of it while I was unclean, nor offered any of it to the dead. It's a little weird. I have listened to the voice of the Lord my God. I have done according to all that you have commanded me. Look down from your holy habitation from heaven and bless your people Israel and the ground which you have given us, a land flowing with milk and honey as you swore to our fathers. The third year tithe. But did you catch it? What an interesting name. It's also called the sacred portion or the sacred or in Hebrew, HaKodesh, the holy. I like how Moses terms this. You shall say before the Lord, verse 13, I have removed the holy from my house. And he's talking about the tithe. This is, this is really significant. You ever think about your tithes and offerings you're giving to the Lord as a holy thing? You know, I, I've got Charlie Brown on my checks and Snoopy. So, you know, it's, it's a little weird to think of that as, as holy. God says, this is holy. When you give your tithe, you're doing something holy, a holy thing. And what's interesting is he says, when you, I have removed the sacred from my house, that word remove, you also know this word. Well, maybe you won't remember the Hebrew word, but you know the meaning. We talked about it last week. It's BRT or BRTA, and it is purge. It's that word purge. So Moses is saying, you shall say when you bring the third year tithe, I have purged my house of the holy. It's interesting because in Deuteronomy, Moses negatively reserves this word, biarti, biarta, purge. He reserves it for the removal of sin from the land. Talking about Deuteronomy 13, verse 5, the false dreamers. Or chapter 17, verse 7, the idolaters. Or chapter 17, verse 12, the rebellious. Remove them, purge them from the land. The murderers, chapter 19, verse 13. The false witnesses, chapter 19, verse 19, using this word purge again and again, purge the land, purge the evil from among you. He talks about the sexually immoral, chapter 22, verses 21 through 24, purge the land of this. 
And finally, the last one to get this word purge applied is the kidnapper who receives capital punishment, purge the land of the evil, Moses says, over and over. And all of a sudden, here he says, purge your house of the tithe. <laughs> purge your house of the holy, the third year tithe. Why would he say that? Because to hold on to it, to keep it in my house, would foster evil. To keep it for myself would harm faith. Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. He doesn't say the rich. He says those who want to get rich. Now, that can, can include those who are rich and it's never enough and want more and more. It can also include those who are poor and all they're thinking about is one day when they're going to be rich. Paul says, Timothy, you need to preach this. That's a dangerous temptation. It's a snare. It will plunge people into ruin. And then he says that famous verse, for the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. The third year tithe, it's the holy. Get it out of your house. I, I like the idea that it's connected here as he's talking about first fruits because we talk about this, first fruits offering. That when you make your offering to the Lord, make it the first thing you do. Before you, before you pay for everything else, give that first tithe to the Lord. Get it out of your house, man. And we have a principle here in the fellowship where we, we began by tithing off the tithe, tithing off the tithes and offerings, 10%. And I've told you before, we bumped that as 20%. So every time money comes in on a monthly basis, 20% goes out. But the principle that we have that, with that is we don't want to keep it in savings. We don't want missions and and tithing money, offering money that comes into the bridge that's, that's dedicated to missions, we don't want it to stay here long. So when it comes in, get it out as fast as possible, you know, responsibly and with stewardship to the right places where it's going to do good for the kingdom in the world. But when the money comes in, man, get that out. And I think it's a great principle with tithing. Notice this, that the holy tithe that they were to get out of their house every third year was given a threefold affirmation. Three things that they were to say in verse 14, I have not eaten of it while mourning. I have not eaten of it while mourning. I have not removed any of it while I was unclean, nor offered any of it to the dead. Why do they say this? All three of those were pagan tithing practices. This is how pagans gave. The pagans would give to you know, to get themselves out of mourning. There, there would be an offering, a sorrow offering, if you will. And, and there would be a, a, an offering of uncleanness. A lot of the pagan offerings involved unclean things. Well, I haven't offered this unclean, the Israelite is to say, nor have I offered any of it to the dead. There was giving for the dead. Makes me think of the holiday in, in Mexico, the Day of the Dead. It's just a weird one. Let's hang out in the cemetery and have snacks. I don't get it. But, but that's okay. I mean, it's, you know, no offense to south of the border. However, it was pagan practice to give for these reasons rather than out of thankful generosity. 
There's an attitude problem here. Paganism and the cults are never about a relationship with God. Do you realize that? That the cultish religions and pagan and heathen religions, they are not about a relationship with God. They're about appeasing the wrath of the gods or they're about quid pro quo, I do this, I get that. In other words, it's giving for getting. But that's the whole idea. And that was the pagan mentality in Canaan. And God says, no, that's not how you're giving. You're giving to the Levite, to the alien, to the fatherless, to the widow. You're being generous out of what? Out of a heart of thanksgiving. As this follows on with this race sheath, this, this thank offering, bring the first fruits, come thankful. And the third year tithe too, Moses draws in. Do that with thanksgiving, thankfully. Jesus said in Matthew 6, verse 20, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, which neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, that, that's one of those other things that preaches really well. You know, it sounds very poetic. Store up for yourself treasures in heaven. Get practical. How do I do that? How do I store up here on this earth, in Egypt, as it were, treasures for the promise of heaven. Jesus says in Matthew 6, very clearly, you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. All these things will be added to you as well. What is the heavenly investment fund or the eternal portfolio? Man, give what you got to the Lord. Follow him. Seek the kingdom. Trust him. He'll take care of the rest. So the third year tithe, all their tithes really, uh, was about God's care. This is God's way of caring for the Levites, aliens, fatherless, widows. It was also God's way of purging their home from the love of money so that that root, the money, the love of it wouldn't take root in their homes and bring them to an evil place. And note this, something just happened here, and you may have caught it, you may not have. Moses just applied the last of the Ten Commandments. He's gone through, he's applied every single one. We've tried to point these out as we've gone, but now the very last one, Exodus 20, verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, his male servant, his female servant, his ox, his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. You shall not covet. And Woods calls giving the best antidote for coveting. Got an issue with coveting? Give. It's the best way to solve the problem. It's how to counter covetousness by giving. Nothing undoes a covetous spirit like thankful generosity. Try it sometime. I mean, it really works. You find that you're noticing what someone else has and you wish you had that. And, and man, everyone else has better than I have. And the best answer to that is not store up money to buy more stuff for yourself. The best answer is give it away. Thankfully, and you will find the coveting goes away itself. Thankfulness reminds me that all I have is from the Lord. And 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you will have an abundance for every good deed. 
He says in verse 11, you will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. That's how it works. It's a circular thing. I give with thankful generosity, and I, it produces thanksgiving. And so I give more, which produces more thanksgiving, and around and around we go. And Moses here at the end of this long, amazing sermon is dealing a death blow to coveting by saying, bring the first fruit, bring the third year tithe, come with thankful generosity. And here he concludes the sermon at the very end. He says, verse 16, this day the Lord your God commands you to do these statutes and ordinances you shall therefore be careful to do them with all your heart and with all your soul. Does that sound familiar? He's now hearkening back to the beginning of the sermon, Deuteronomy 6, 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Love the Lord your God. And it is a death blow to coveting because Moses, because the Lord really, makes it all about relationship and not religion. Relationship rather than riches. See, pagan religion, it's all about the riches. It's all about doing what you got to do to appease the gods, to please the gods, so the gods will make you rich and successful. God says, that's not the thing. I, I want you to know me. I, I want to know you. We're in a relationship together. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And again, do these things, Moses says, with all your heart and with all your soul. Verse 17, you have de today declared that the Lord to be your God and that you would, watch this, walk in his ways and keep his statutes, his commandments, and his ordinances and listen to his voice. This is what I call a grace sandwich. This is, this is how you keep the commandments of God. You sandwich them, his statutes, his commandments, and ordinances, sandwich them between walking in his ways and listening to his voice. Just follow him. Walk in the ways of Jesus. Do what he does. Uh, speak his words. Act as he acted. Just walk in his ways and listen to his voice. And guess what happens? In between, you'll find that you're keeping the commandments, the statutes, the ordinances. Jesus put it like this, John 14, 15, if you love me, what? You'll keep my commandments. It's not saying, if you love me, prove it, keep my commandments. He's saying, no, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's how it works. Love me, and the commandments will take care of themselves. Verse 18, the Lord has today declared you to be his people, a treasured possession as he promised you and that you should keep all his commandments and that he will set you high above all nations which he has made for praise, fame, and honor and that you shall be a consecrated people to the Lord your God as he has spoken. Now, we're going to get into the next two chapters. We're going to move through them quickly. Just trust me on that. But there's something you have to know before we get in to chapter 27. If you go into 27 and 28 and you don't understand this, you're going to find 27 and 28 very difficult to swallow. So get this. This is God's desire for his people. Always has been, is today, 
always will be. Verse 19, that he will set you high above the nations which he has made for praise and fame and honor. Fame would be renown and that you shall be a consecrated people to the Lord your God as he has spoken. That is God's desire for Israel. Praise and fame and honor. That's what he wants for the Jewish people. That's what he has always wanted for his people Israel. Jeremiah chapter 13 verse 11 uses the exact same phrase. It's translated a little differently, but it's the same phrase in the Hebrew. God says, I love this, as the waistband clings to the waist of a man, so I made the whole household of Israel and the whole household of Judah cling to me. The older I get, the more I understand the waistband clinging to the waist of a man. That's, he says, that's Israel and Judah. They're like a belt to me, just tight around me. And he says that they might be for me a people for renown, for praise, and for glory. That's what I want, God says. I want Israel to be glorious and famous. I want them to be my people, praised. But then Jeremiah 13, 11 ends with these five difficult words. They did not listen. That's four words. Oh, it's, but they did not listen. Five words. They didn't listen to me. That's what I wanted. It's like a father telling his son, telling his daughter, I want the best for you, son. I want the best for you, sweetheart. And then the child goes off. I don't want to do what you say. Yeah, but I, I have the best in mind. I don't care. And that was Israel with the Lord. So what happened? He brought them into the land, and they lost the land because they did not listen. And by the way, don't think of ourselves as any better because listening is one of the most difficult things even for followers of Jesus to do. We have trouble listening. We have trouble listening and obeying. The people of Israel, God says, I want to make you a marvel in the world, a wonder, a praise. And they got into the land and they lost the land. Again, keeping this in mind, I told you before, God has given seven covenants. Through, across all history, the Edenic or Adamic covenant with Adam and Eve in the garden gave them a really brief covenant, just don't eat the fruit of that tree and we'll be good. A one law covenant. God also gave the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant. He gave the land covenant, and, and note this, some will call it the Palestinian covenant, referring to the land as Palestine. But when God gave the covenant, it was not called Palestine, it was called Israel. It's the land covenant that God made. And then he gave the Mosaic covenant, which we've just been studying in Torah law, the Mosaic covenant, these, you know, uh, <clears throat> Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that's all the Mosaic covenant being laid out before us. He will give, as we study through the scriptures, the Davidic covenant, a promise that he makes to David. And then finally, the new covenant. Seven covenants. Six of these covenants are unconditional. That is, he'll do them or he has done them regardless of human response. I got you, the Lord might say. One conditional covenant out of the six, the Mosaic covenant. 
It's the only one. Now, remember, he's already given the land covenant that says the land will, shall, will, will forever be yours. He says to Abraham, this is your land and it will be the land of your offspring. The Mosaic covenant was to the people at that time, when you go in the land, if you keep my commandments and statutes and ordinances, you can live in the land that I already promised and gave to Abraham for all time. But if you don't, if you violate these things, you will lose the land. And what's marvelous is God has now brought Israel back into the land, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Their stay, their right to live in the land depended on them keeping this covenant as we have studied it. And they didn't listen. And they didn't keep it. So they lost the land, and we're going to see the outcome now in chapters 27 and 28. But understand this. i got to underscore this again. The Lord has never forgotten his desire for Israel. Praise, fame, honor. Jeremiah 33, verse 7, I will, he says, restore the fortunes of Judah and the fortunes of Israel and will rebuild them as they were at first. I will cleanse them from all their iniquity by which they have sinned against me. I will pardon all their iniquities by which they have sinned against me and by which they have transgressed against me. It will be to me a name of joy and praise and glory. There's that phrase. Before all the nations of the earth, which will hear of all the good that I do for them, and they will fear and tremble because of all the good and all the peace that I make for it, that is for the land and for the people of Israel. He'll repeat this phrase again, Zephaniah 19, verse 20, at that time I'll bring you in. Even at the time when I gather you together, indeed I will give you renown and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. That's God's desire Hold on to that and hold on tight as we enter chapter 27. Then Moses and the elders of Israel charged the people, saying, Keep all the commandments which I command you today. So it shall be on the day when you cross the Jordan to give to the land which the Lord your God gives you, or to the land which the Lord your God gives you, that you shall set up for yourself large stones, coat them with lime, whitewash them, in other words, and write on them all the words of this law when you cross over, so that you may enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, a land flowing with milk and honey as the Lord, the God of your fathers, promised you. And so it shall be when you cross the Jordan, you shall set up on Mount Ebal these stones, as I am commanding you today, and you shall coat them with lime. Moreover, you shall build there an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. You shall not wield an iron tool on them. You shall build the altar of the Lord your God of uncut stones, and you shall offer on it burnt offerings to the Lord your God. And you shall offer peace offerings and eat there, and rejoice before the Lord your God. You shall write on the stones all the words of this law very distinctly, which must have been an interesting task. And then Moses and the Levitical priests spoke to all Israel, saying, Be silent and listen, O Israel. This day you have become a people for the Lord your God. 
You shall therefore obey the Lord your God and do his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today. Moses also charged the people on that day, saying, When you cross the Jordan, these shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people. Shimon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. Those six tribes. For the court curse, these shall stand on Mount Ebal, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali, six tribes. The Levites shall then answer and say to all the men of Israel with a loud voice, Cursed is the man who makes an idol, a molten image, an abomination to the Lord, the work of the hands of the craftsmen, and sets it up in secret, and all the people shall answer and say, Amen. Now, wait a minute. What's happening here? They're going to cross the Jordan. They're going to come into the land. And there are two mountains, literally side by side. I've stood on Mount Gerizim. It's a steep mountain that goes up very high. You can stand on the top of the one and look directly atop to, uh, across to the top of the other. Now, we say mountain, we think of Mount Rainier. Don't think Mount Rainier. These are not super tall mountains, more like high hills, but they're called mountains. You go up Mount Gerizim on one side. If you come down the mountain, there's a valley in between. You go right up the next mountain, and literally you can look right across, and there it is with this valley in between. The Lord says, when you get into the land, I want you to go into that, and, and I want six of the tribes to stand on Mount Ebal for curses. And I want six of the tribes to stand on the Mount of Blessings, Mount Gerizim, six on each side, with Joshua and the priests, they're going to stand in the valley right in the middle, and they're going to begin to call out blessings and curses. And if you happen to be on the side on Mount Ebal, you're one of the six tribes hearing the curses, you say amen every time a curse is levied. And if you're on Mount Gerizim, the Mount of Blessing, every time a blessing is spoken, you say amen. And they would go back and forth, and they had this procedure that the Lord wanted for them as soon as they came into the land. Watch this. This, by the way, will happen in Joshua chapter 8. So we'll have to wait to actually see it take place. But here it is described. Again, verse 14, The Levites shall then answer and say to all the men of Israel with a loud voice, Cursed is the man who makes an idol or molten image, an abomination to the Lord, the work of the hands of the craftsmen, and sets it up in secret. And all the people, there on Mount Ebal, answer and say, Amen. Verse 16, cursed is he who dishonors his father or mother, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is he who moves his neighbor's boundary mark, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is he who misleads a blind person on the road, and all the people shall say, Amen. Who would do that? Misleading a blind person on the road? That's just cruel. Okay. Okay, I kind of did this once. <laughs> Not a blind person, but my, my wife, Cheryl, her, her folks had a dog named Tina, uh, a dachshund. That's all they buy. They, get, they just get weenie dogs. And, and this little black weenie dog was blind as a bat. And we had more fun moving around the furniture when she ran around the house. It was just, sorry. Cursed! <laughs> Cursed be Rick for doing such a horrible thing. I was young at the time. All right, where are we? So cursed be the one who misleads a blind person. Verse 19, cursed is he who distorts the justice due an alien, the fatherless, and the widow. And all the people shall say, amen. 
Verse 20, cursed is he who lies with his father's wife because he has uncovered his father's skirt. And all the people shall say, amen. Verse 21, cursed is he who lies with any animal. And all the people shall say, amen. And then verse 22, cursed is he who lies with his sister the daughter of his father or of his mother. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is he who lies with his mother-in-law, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is he who strikes his neighbor in secret, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is he who accepts a bribe to strike down an innocent person, and all the people shall say, Amen. And verse 26, Cursed is he who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them, and all the people shall say, Amen. Why these situations? Now, you can go back and read through it, as I did several times this week. Why these situations? Why are these things specifically cursed? And then I began to realize something. They're all secret sins. All of these, difficult to discover, cloaked in darkness. These are things that people might do and think they can get away with. These things that would be known by the Lord, seen by the Lord, and would be cursed by the Lord, whether other people are aware of them or not, they're all secret sins. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 11, Paul writes to the church, says to you, says to me, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness. Darkness? Yeah, that which is unseen. Don't participate in that. Instead, even expose them. For it's disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But the things done in secret, again, are known to God. And as you go down this list, they're all secret sins. Twelve, secrets, twelve secret sins. Twelve sins. Twelve tribes. There's a picture being painted here by the Lord of Israel standing under the curse of the law. The law itself was a curse to Israel because Israel could not keep it. It's a curse to you and a curse to me if we try to keep the law thinking if we do these things, we'll save ourselves. No, it's a curse. If you don't keep the law, you are cursed. And so the law is a curse. Twelve curses now spoken over the twelve tribes as they all say, Amen and Amen. Daniel chapter 9, verse 11 the prophet said, Indeed, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, not obeying your voice. So the curse has been poured out on us along with the oath which is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, for we have sinned against him. Daniel is speaking that in prayer in Babylon where the people were finally taken out of the land Finally and ultimately, in 586 B.C., the land was destroyed. The temple burned to the ground and the last vestiges of the Jewish people taken into Babylonian captivity. And it was there, after 70 years, that Daniel says, we're here because of the curse. What curse, Daniel? The curse of the law. We didn't keep it. That was the whole point. The curses on Mount Ebal. And another, another Jew named Paul explains this further. He says in Romans 5, verse 20, the law came in so that the transgression would increase. I've explained that before. Like a flashlight, the law shines on the lives of the people and reveals things that would not have been revealed without the law. 
Sins that they might not even have known were sins. But man, that light of the law beams the perfect law and reveals, and all of a sudden it becomes a curse for the people who cannot keep it. Oh, but thank goodness. Paul says in Romans 5.20, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Listen, through all these curses, God doesn't want you to live a cursed life. God doesn't want anyone to live a cursed life. Yes, we'll have afflictions. Yes, we'll have tribulations. We'll have difficulties. But that's a far cry from living a cursed life. You live a cursed life when you live life on your own terms. That's a cursed life. I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to get there my way. I'm going to live the way I want to live. And that is a cursed way to live. The blessings come when we live life his way because his way works. The blessings, like Jesus saying, Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Is that you? Blessed are the gentle or meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. <laughs> they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful. They shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart. They shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be called sons of God. Boy, that applies. I'm thinking about all the crowds outside the jury room there in <clears throat> Kenosha. The Kyle Rittenhouse thing is going on right now, that trial. I, I, I haven't even heard if it's been concluded. But people are amping up for more riots and rebellion. Blessed are the peacemakers. They'll be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, Jesus says. Rejoice. And be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. And in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Man, that's not quid pro quo. The blessings of God, this is just the way it is. It's just the way it is. You know, the, the humble and the meek and the peacemakers and the pure in heart, these things are the, are the true result of, of these people and of these attitudes, the blessings that come. Now, just when you think that the Israelites on Mount Ebal are getting a little tired of all these curses, suddenly out come the blessings. And by the way, you might say, I don't want to be in the Mount Ebal group. I don't want to be over there. Hey, you know what's good about being over there? When the blessings are shouted amen to, it's going to resound right in your face. They get to listen to their brothers as the blessings are pronounced over all Israel. Their brothers are now going to say amen, and it's going to roll over you like, wow. It's like listening to you all during worship. I love that. It comes rolling back over us. It's great. So they get to hear the amens, and, and here are the blessings. Chapter 28, verse 1. 
Now it shall be if you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commands, which I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above the nations of the earth. All these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if you obey the Lord your God. Blessed you shall be in the city. Blessed you shall be in the country. Blessed shall be the offspring of your body and the, and the produce of your ground and the offspring of your beasts, the increase of your herd and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be uh, when you come in and blessed shall you be when you go out. The Lord shall cause your enemies to rise up against you to be defeated or who rise up against you to be defeated before you. They will come out against you one way and will flee before you seven ways. I love that. The Lord will command the blessing upon you and your barns and all that you put your hand to. He will bless you in the land which the Lord your God gives you. The Lord will establish you as a holy people to himself as he swore to you if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. So all the peoples of the earth will see that you are called by the name of Yahweh and they will be afraid of you. The Lord will make you abound in prosperity in the offspring of your body and the offspring or yet the offspring of your beast and the produce of your ground in the land which the Lord your God swore to your fathers to give you. The Lord will open for you his good storehouse, the heavens, to give you rain to your land in its season and bless all the work of your hand. And you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. You won't have to. Verse 13, the Lord will make you the head and not the tail. And you only will be above and you will not be underneath if you listen to the commandments of the Lord your God, which I am charging, which I charge you today, observe them carefully. The word observe there is literally keep and do them. So it's an active observation. It's not just look at them and check them out. It's do them, keep them. Verse 14, and do not turn aside from any of the words which I command you today to the right or to the left to go after other gods to serve them. And those are the blessings. And I'm going to save talking about them for Sunday. But let's get back to the curses. Verse 15, it shall come about if you do not obey the Lord your God to observe, to do all his commandments and his statutes with which I charge you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. And now the curses come in waves, not just the 12 we already read, but wave upon wave upon wave of curses. Cursed you shall be in the city, verse 16, and cursed you shall be in the country. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the offspring of your body and the produce of your ground and the increase of your herd and the young of your flock. Cursed you shall be when you come in and cursed shall you be when you go out. And the word cursed, note this, it's arur and it means bitter. Bitter. Your life will be a bitterness. Again, wave upon wave, not just of curses that the Lord is leveling to the people, but bitterness for the life that they choose in rebellion. It's bitter and it's all prophesied and it is all fulfilled in the history of the Jewish people. Watch this, verse 20. The Lord will send upon you curses, confusion and rebuke in all you undertake to do until you're destroyed until you perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you've forsaken me. The Lord will make the pestilence cling to you until he has consumed you from the land where you are entering to possess it. 
The Lord will smite you with consumption and with fever and with inflammation and with fiery heat and with the sword and with blight and mildew, and they will pursue you until you perish. The heaven which is over your head shall be bronze, and the earth which is under you iron. So think about that, a hot, dry heaven and a rock-hard land beneath them, not producing anything. Verse 24, the Lord will make the rain of your land powder and dust from heaven. It shall come down on you until you are destroyed. The Lord shall cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You will go out one way against them, but you will flee seven ways before them, which is the opposite of the blessing. You will be an example of terror to all the kingdoms of the earth. Your carcasses will be food to all the birds of the sky and the beasts of the earth, and there will be none, no one to frighten them away. The Lord will smite you with the boils of Egypt and with tumors and with the scab and with the itch from which you cannot be healed. Talk about an itch that you can't scratch. And it's such a, it's a profound picture because think about that, the itch that you can't reach. It's in the middle of your back. You know the spot I'm talking about? You go this way, you can't get there, and you go this way, and you can't get there? you got to find someone to come scratch your back because it's driving you nuts. And that is the bitter life rejecting the Lord. It's like an itch that can't be scratched. You cannot be satisfied. Continuing, verse 28, the Lord will smite you with madness and with blindness and bewilderment of heart. We're watching this happen in the cultures of the world today. We're watching it happen in America. People are going crazy. But... But this is God's warning of curses on Israel. You will grope at noon as the blind man gropes in darkness. You will not prosper in your ways. You shall only be oppressed and robbed continually with none to save you. And you shall betroth the wife, but another man will violate her. You shall build a house, but you will not live in it. You shall build a vineyard, but you will not use its fruit. Do you remember there, verse 30, that God said a young man who has just betrothed the wife doesn't have to go to war? And someone who's just built a house doesn't have to go to war. And, and someone who has um, planted a vineyard, you get the year off. You don't have to go to war. You get to enjoy these things. Now the curse flips them upside down, and all three of these are a complete mess. Your ox, verse 31, will be slaughtered before your eyes. You will not eat of it. Your donkey shall be torn away from you. You will not be restored and will not be restored to you. Your sheep shall be given to your enemies and you will have none to save you. And all of a sudden we start to see something happening here. Historically, your sons and your daughters shall be given to another people. While your eyes look on and yearn for them continually and there will be nothing you can do. And in 722 BC, Assyria came in and wiped out northern Israel their daughters, their sons, given to another people. In fact, their daughters and their sons and those 10 northern tribes, those who didn't flee to the south or those who weren't protected, actually most were taken into captivity in Assyria. And, and then Assyria took some of the Jews of that captivity, some of the Israelites, mixed them with other nations and replanted them back in what is called Samaria. They became Samaritans, half-breed Jews, part Israelite part mixture of all the nations as the Assyrians did this and resettled the area. That was Assyrian policy. Their sons and their daughters were given to others. Something in interesting here also in verse 32, this applies 
to Babylon as well. Because it's in 1 Kings 25, and you can read the story on your own time, but 1 Kings 25 tells us, he says here, while your eyes look on and yearn for them continually, there will be nothing you can do. And Zedekiah was forced to look on with his eyes wide open and watch every single one of his sons slaughtered by Nebuchadnezzar, by Babylon. And then Nebuchadnezzar had Zedekiah's eyes immediately put out, so the last thing he saw was the murder of his sons. And there was nothing he could do. And he was blind from there on to the rest of his life. Verse 33, continuing as we roll from Assyria into Babylon, a people whom you do not know shall eat the produce of your ground and all your labors, and you will never be anything but oppressed and crushed continually. You shall be driven mad by the sight of what you see. Man, the, the attack of Babylon, what happened in Jerusalem at that time, people did insane things, as you'll hear. The Lord will strike you on the knees and the legs with sore boils which, from which you cannot be healed. From the sole of your foot to the crown of your head, Isaiah uses that exact phrase. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 6 says, from the whole sole of the foot to the crown of your head, there's nothing sound. It's all wounds. You're infected, you're sick. Verse 36, the Lord will bring you and your king whom you set over you to a nation which neither you nor your fathers have known, and there you shall serve other gods, wood and stone, Babylon. Babylon. You shall become, verse 37, a horror, a proverb, and a taunt among all the people where the Lord drives you. And you can fast forward all the way to the Holocaust. Do you remember the yellow star with the word Juden in it? Which was a taunt? The beautiful name of the Jewish people turned into a byword by Hitler's Nazis? You'll become a taunt where the Lord drives you. You shall bring out much seed to the field, but you will gather in little, for the locust will consume it. You shall plant and cultivate vineyards, but you will neither drink the wine nor gather the grapes, for the worm will devour them. You shall have olive trees throughout your territory, but you will not anoint yourself with oil for your olives will drop off. You shall have sons and daughters, but they will not be yours. They will go into captivity. The cricket shall possess all your trees and the produce of your ground. The alien who is among you shall rise above you higher and higher, but you will go down lower and lower. He shall lend to you. You will not lend to him. Why? Because they won't have anything to lend. He shall be the head. You will be the tail. And he says, verse 45, so all these curses shall come on you and pursue you and overtake you until you are destroyed because you would not obey the Lord your God by keeping his commandments and his statutes, which he commanded you. Real quickly, listen, you can't outrun sin. You can't outrun it. The curse of sin, the consequences will hunt you, hunt you down over and over. Sin runs you down, it runs you over. Be sure, Moses said, Numbers 32, 23, be sure your sin will find you out. It's not that God is trying to dog you, to dog me, to catch us in our sin. No, it's our sin that reveals us. It's our sin that betrays us. The consequence of our sin, it's our own sin finding us out. Verse 46, and again, they shall become a sign and a wonder on you and your descendants forever, a sign and a wonder, what will? The curses. The curses of Israel, Moses says, these are going to become a sign 
and a wonder. You ever wonder about anti-Semitism in the world? You ever just look at it and go, it makes no sense. The Jewish people in the world, small in number, and yes, I'm a fan, I'll confess to that, but it's because they're the people, the chosen ones of God. It's because of what God has done in and through the Jewish people, but a people small in number who have blessed the world, all the nations of the world, more than any people group in history. And it is stunning to go down in all the different areas of blessing that come out of Israel that we've talked about many times over the years here. This, this people, the Jewish people, bless us in industry. They bless us in technology. They bless us in science, in medicine, in entertainment, across the board, in the arts, in business and finance. All of this, Israel's at the top, even for all of the curse. In the rebellion against the Lord, it's remarkable and it doesn't make sense that such a people are such a blessing to the Lord and yet are so hated by so many. Anti-Semitism, I've said before, the only thing that makes any sense of it is Satan. It's a satanic thing. Greatest people group in the history of the world as far as what they have brought to the world. Back in 1779, Frederick the Great king of Prussia, he asked the French philosopher, the Marquis d'Argens, saying, can you give me one single irrefutable proof that there is a God? And the Marquis said, yes, your majesty, the Jews. The Jews, a people who should have been wiped out but remain to this day, a people who have remarkably blessed all the nations throughout history and yet are hated for it a people who God has blessed and protected even though they've come under the curse of their own law. But listen, this is bigger than Israel. And in fact, this is Israel and the curses. They're a sign and a wonder, truly of a God-sized truth. Read on, verse 47, because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and a glad heart. That's what he wants, by the way. For the abundance of all things, therefore you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger, in thirst, in nakedness, and in the lack of all things. And watch this. He will put an iron yoke on your neck until he has destroyed you. The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth, as the eagle swoops down, a nation whose language you shall not understand, a nation of fierce countenance who will have no respect for the old and show no favor to the young. This is a stunning, explicit prophecy of Rome. He's talking about, remember this is, Rome didn't even exist when Moses spoke these words. Babylon didn't even exist. This is way before Babylon and, and, and mighty Persia and the Greeks and ultimately Rome would come into being. Moses is talking about Rome here and it's remarkable, an iron yoke, he calls them, verse 48. This, this nation from afar is going to come upon you with an iron yoke. Do you remember? Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, a very strange dream of this amazing statue with this golden head and then these, these bronze arms, chest, and the silver belly. And then you get on down and there's this iron legs. Iron legs, legs of iron. 
And Daniel interprets the dream, Daniel chapter 2, verse 40, there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron. Inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things, so like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these into pieces. The iron is Rome. And so Moses even uses the word an iron yoke. And then in verse 49, even more explicitly, he says, the eagle, as the eagle swoops down, the eagle was the official emblem of Rome. The iron kingdom, Rome, and the fierce countenance. And Moses even portends the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. Listen to this as he describes it, but 1,500 years before it took place. Moreover, it shall, uh, it shall, this iron kingdom, Rome, it shall eat the offspring of your herd and the produce of your ground until you are destroyed who also leaves you no grain, new wine, no or oil, nor the increase of your herd or the young of the flock until they have caused you to perish. It shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout your land and it shall besiege you in all your towns throughout your land which the Lord your God has given you. It reminds me of the siege on Masada, which was one of the final holdouts Three years after Jerusalem fell, there was a group of about 1,000 Jews that fled to Masada, up to the top of Masada, where there was a Herodian palace, fully stocked for years and years, and the Romans besieged it. And when they finally got in, it's, it's, it's a stunning story. If you've never seen the movie Masada, you need to watch Masada with Peter O'Toole, I think is the Roman commander. They get in finally, and when they come in there, every last Jew, except for a couple of, a couple of widows, Every last Jew was dead. It was the last holdout. But they were besieged there at Masada. And then, watch this, fall of Jerusalem, verse 53, then you shall eat the offspring of your own body, the flesh of your sons and of your daughters, whom the Lord your God has given you during the siege and the distress by which your enemy will oppress you. The man who is refined and very delicate among you shall be hostile toward his brother and toward his wife, the wife he cherishes, and toward the rest of his children who remain, so that he will not give even one of them any of the flesh of his children which he will eat, since he has nothing else left during the siege and the distress by which your enemy will oppress you in all your towns. The refined and delicate woman among you, who would not venture to set the sole of her foot on the ground for delicateness and refinement shall be hostile toward the husband she cherishes and toward her son and her daughter and toward her afterbirth which issues from between her legs and toward her children whom she bears for she will eat them secretly for lack of anything else during the siege and the distress by which your enemy will oppress you in your towns. My friends, that happened in the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. That's how bad it was inside the city. That is how starving and mad the people were. And what Moses describes here happened historically, word for word. It, it, it's, it gets worse. It's called the diaspora, the dispersion of the Jewish people. Verse 58 if you're not careful to observe all the words of this law which are written in this book, to fear the, and this honored and awesome name, Yahweh Elohim, then the Lord will bring extraordinary plagues on you and your descendants, even severe and lasting plagues and miserable and chronic sicknesses. He will bring back on you all the diseases of Egypt of which you were afraid, and they will cling to you. 
Also, every sickness and every plague, which not written in the book of this law, the Lord will bring on you until you are destroyed, and then you shall be left few in number, whereas you are as numerous as the stars of the heaven, because you did not obey the Lord your God. It shall come about that as the Lord delighted over you to prosper you and multiply you, so the Lord will delight over you to make you perish and destroy you, and you will be torn from the land where you are entering to possess it. Now, that's just hard to swallow. God delighted over you to prosper you. I can buy that. The Lord delighted over you to destroy you. That doesn't seem to line up with the character of God. That word delight, it's actually rejoice. The, the Hebrew word, as the Lord rejoiced over you to prosper you and multiply you, he will rejoice over you to make you perish. Why would God rejoice over making the people perish, over taking them through these afflictions? Hold that thought. Moreover, the Lord will scatter you among all the peoples from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth. That's the diaspora. And there you shall serve other gods, wood and stone, which you or your fathers have not known. Among those nations you shall find no rest there will be no resting place for the sole of your foot, but there the Lord will give you a trembling heart, failing of eyes, and despair of souls. Man, I, I think about Jewish people in hiding places throughout Europe. Talk about despairing, having to hide out just to survive. And he says in verse 66, so your life shall hang in doubt before you, and you will be in dread night and day and shall have no assurance of your life. Let me ask you tonight, let me get back to the Jewish people just a second, but does your life hang in doubt? Are, are you living without assurance? Uh, uncertain? Are you bitter? See, God saw all of it coming before you did. God knew the direction before you did, which is why God always says beforehand, don't go this way. Don't reject me. Don't rebel against me because this is where you're going to end up. Hopeless. It's a frightening statement that there is no rest for the weary. But you know what? Rest is exactly what God promised the weary. Isaiah 30, 15, in repentance and rest, you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength, but you were not willing. He says in Isaiah 30, verse 18, the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Now, that's the heart of God. And therefore, he waits on high to have compassion on you. What's he waiting for? He's waiting for you to turn to him. He's waiting for me to trust him so that he can turn and have compassion. For the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are all those who long for him. Well, verse 67, in the morning you shall say, would that it were evening. And at the evening you shall say, would that it were morning. My kids were saying that during the blackout the other night. Power went out, no power anywhere. Couldn't watch anything, couldn't play any games, couldn't do anything that relied on electricity. Finally, David just went to bed. I went downstairs like 9.15, I found Christopher on the bottom bunk, sound asleep, fully dressed. I'm like, this is, you know, in the night, you wish it were morning, and in the morning, you wish it were evening, the Lord said. 
Would that it be that it was morning because of the dread of your heart which you dread and the, for the sight of your eyes which you will see. The Lord will bring you back to Egypt in ships. By the way about which I spoke to you, you will never see it again. And there you will offer yourselves for sale to your enemies as male and female slaves, but there will be no buyer. And by the way, in both 70 A.D. and again in 135 A.D., the Jewish people who were driven from the land, many were taken literally down to Egypt to be sold as slaves, exactly as Moses declared. And it's amazing that he says there will be no buyer. No one's going to want you where you go. No one's going to want you. You go through all of these curses, and truly I think Deuteronomy 28 has got to be one of the heaviest chapters in all the Bible. And it's not history. It's prophecy. It's not what's happening in the moment. It's what Moses says, if we don't trust in the Lord, if you don't stay with him, if you rebel and reject him, this is where you're going to end up. And this is exactly where Israel ended up. And it reads like a history. Let me put this together now. God is not through with the Jew. I love to say that. Wave upon wave of bitter curses have overtaken Israel over time, just as Moses said would happen because of their rejection of God. And by the way, wave after wave of bitter curses have befallen all mankind over time whenever they reject God. It's the way of it. You reject the hand of blessing, you will not receive the blessing. You reject the one who loves you, you will be left out in the cold without love. Not because God wants it that way, but because the heart of the, re of the rebel, the heart of those who reject, doesn't want God. Stay away. I don't need you. I'm doing it my way. Well, then do it your way. But your way, my way, is a cursed way. God's way is a way of blessing. So how do we square these things with a loving God? who delighted over them to prosper them, but now delights over them to make them perish and destroy them. Listen, the second delight of God is a delight that what he's doing with Israel will result in their return, will result in their once again blessing. He is the father who disciplines his sons and daughters because he loves them. Now, you might say, well, it seems harsh. Isn't there another way? God knows the way. God knows the way. God's heart for Israel is to bless. This is not what God wanted for Israel. This is what God knew was coming. This is the bitterness that he said, this is what is coming. And I love you too much not to let you know ahead of time, your rejection is going to result in this bitterness. But here's the God-sized truth. That through Israel... God reveals himself. He chooses a people, and then he shows us in his interaction with that people, he shows us our relationship with him. A relationship of rebellion, you can see how it plays out in Israel. It will play out that way for you. A relationship of trust, you can see how it played out with Israel in the first century. Because you see, God revealed himself in history through Israel, that we might know God, that we might understand something of his righteousness, of his persistence, and even of his patience through Israel. And it was through Israel that God entered the world. It wasn't another people. 
He didn't come through the Romans or the Babylonians or the Greeks. God came through the Jewish people, entering the world himself, putting on flesh, dwelling among us as a Jew himself. Why? To show grace and to reveal the whole plan to us. Paul said in Romans 9, 4, to Israel belongs the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple services and the promises whose are the fathers, and I love this, from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is over all God blessed forever. Amen. Paul declares the remarkable. And my friends, the tide is turning. The blessings are coming. Israel is already, as you know, a strong presence back in the land. Being called back, still dry bones, but bones standing up and coming together, about to be covered in flesh, about to be given a new heart, Israel. And God is going to accomplish all his good delight and desire for Israel, even as he does for the saints. But let me end with this. In Deuteronomy 27, verses 4 through 7, if you look back there, it's Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, and it's the blessings and the curses. Listen to this again. So it shall be when you cross the Jordan, you shall set up on Mount Ebal these stones that I'm commanding you today. Moreover, verse 5, you shall build an altar there to the Lord your God. Mount Ebal. Mount Ebal means, if you want to jot this down, it means heap of ruin. It's a heap of ruin. That's Mount Ebal, the Mount of Curses. How many people have made their lives a heap of ruin? Taking on themselves curses for trying to do things their own way rather, rather than, than God's way. And there on that heap of ruin, not on Mount Gerizim, note this, this is huge. It's not on Mount Gerizim, the Mount of Blessing. It's on Mount Ebal, the Mount of Cursing, the heap of ruin that they're told to build two things. Build there a whitewashed stone monument with the law written all over it. The law on the mount of cursing. The law on the heap of ruin. Paul said, Galatians 3.10, we just read this recently, as many as are the works of the law, or as, as many are, as are of the works of the law, those who follow the law, they're under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Put the monument to the law on Mount Ebal, the Mount of Cursing. But also, build an altar, an altar of sacrifice there on the Mount of Cursing. Another altar of sacrifice would be on another Mount, Mount Moriah, the altar of the cross, that this represented Galatians 3.13, Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus, listen, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So Gentiles now get roped into this marvelous plan of God. But note this, on Mount Ebal, they're to offer sacrifices. So a monument to the law, on the mount, the heap of ruin, and then the altar of sacrifice, but only two sacrifices were offered. Moses describes this, and we see it happen in Joshua chapter 8, just two of the five. Remember there are five? Leviticus 1 through 5 details the five different kinds of sacrifices. Only two were offered on Mount Ebal on that altar. 
the burnt offering was first to be offered up. The burnt offering, which we talked about, was that all-consuming devotion. Everything on the burnt offering, everything was put on the altar and was to be completely consumed by fire. On the altar, the all-consuming devotion, that's Jesus on the cross. All-consuming, burning out the bitterness, consuming the curse of the law, that's the picture of the burnt offering. Offer that on the heap of ruin. And then after you offer that, one more offering, the peace offering. The peace offering, that's just so beautiful. The peace offering which speaks of total satisfaction and reunited relationship with the Lord. The Jewish person could bring the peace offering anytime they wanted just to have barbecue with Jesus, with God, just to be there with the Lord. The peace offering speaks of peace with God and the peace of God, which is ours in Jesus. John chapter 1, verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. That is God's delight. God delighted that even in the heap of ruin that Jesus would come into the world and that he would provide the sacrifice. Don't let your life be a heap of ruin. Trust in the Lord. Give it to Jesus. Don't let your life hang in doubt. Find your life in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, a lot of words, a lot of heaviness, a lot of history, a lot of prophecy tonight. But in all of this, Lord, as is usual, we see your grace. We see, Lord, your provision. We see your perfect plan unfolding in remarkable ways, mind-boggling what you accomplished. Father, tonight, I just want to pray two things. First and foremost, I want to pray, remember your people Israel for the sake of your servant David. Lord, remember your people Israel. You made promises. You made unconditional covenant promises to Abraham that need fulfillment. We know you promised to fulfill those, and I pray that you would. We align ourselves with you to say, Father, all Israel will be saved. And Lord, I pray for your children in the church, the saints, that you would help us to live lives in such a way, oh, Jesus, as you said, that people would see our good works and glorify our Father, which is in heaven. Father, I pray for the lifting of curses and bitterness and sorrow. Yes, Lord, it means that we come into a life. We're still in Egypt. We're still in the world. You're going to pull us out. We're still going to have trouble and affliction and challenges, but not curses. And I pray, Father, for the breaking of the curse over somebody listening tonight at home, or somebody here, that the curse would be broken once and for all in the name of Jesus. That salvation would come and new life begin tonight. I pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.